Welcome to Shabbat Replay, a weekly highlight from services at Mishkan Chicago. Last Saturday after the morning service, Rabbi Stephen led a virtual session of Nash and Drash, where we discussed the Parsha, the weekly Torah portion. This week's Parsha is from Exodus, the final plague. Pharaoh surrenders and agrees to release the Israelites from bondage, but as he sends them away, he says three strange words to Moses and Darren. Bless me too. Weird, right? Not only is Pharaoh Moses' enemy, he's supposed to be a god himself. So why ask his enemies to ask their god to bless him? We considered this enigma in dialogue with some commentaries. Raise your hand if you actually read anything or if you just talked to each other. <laughs> you read things. We didn't. Oh. <laughs> you did well, good. I'm glad some people read some things. There's, you know, Rabbi Lizzie, you know, making things go off the rails. <laughs> Our group read every word out loud. I'm just I had Mark and uh, Becca. So there. You know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being a good student. <laughs> Rabbi Leslie, you know, I'll have a word later. Um, <laughs> you know, I have to say, though, it's amazing. I feel like um, uh, I know that we're now Zoom pros because I remember like a year ago, if you clicked close breakout rooms, like you'd have like random folks from different rooms like coming back at different times because you'd panic and like hit the button at the wrong time and like everybody was able to like finish their conversations like we are zoom we're zoom pros so silver lining for this moment so what did people what did people think about what did people discover what was what was fascinating what was interesting to you about this this like seemingly throwaway line at the end of pharaoh's um diatribe speech whatever you might call it these three words that, that, you know, the rabbis wrestled with, what, like, what does it mean? Any thoughts came up for people? So I'll, I'll take a stab. We talked, you know, um, without coming to any conclusion because the, the different, the five different uh, uh, interpretations, a couple of them, like Rashi, he, Pharaoh was worried about him dying because he was the firstborn. And of course, it occurred to us that, of course, Pharaoh as the king was the firstborn of the prior Pharaoh. So he really was. And that it was just an extension of his selfishness, worried about himself. Bless me because I'm at risk. And I think one of the other ones. But then the other interpretations were much more human. He was thinking about the death of his people or the security of his people. Um, and do we see the humanity in this evil person who just lost a son? And whose kingdom was suffering. And, I, and Mark or Becca jump in. I don't know that we resolved it. I, I, I'll take that back. I'm sure we didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think just the other thought I have is just he, he is this man who is grieving in this moment, who has sustained such personal and widespread loss and is kind of in this bargaining phase of grief for how he is trying to make sense of what, what has just happened. Hmm. That's interesting, like the the idea of it being a bargaining phase of grief, because then, then you know, you have to kind of sit with the sincerity of this moment, right? Um, because bargaining is one of the phases of grief that precedes acceptance, right? Um, and acceptance seems like it would be a prerequisite for forgiveness. Um, so how, do you, how, how do you reconcile the fact that once the Jews started to leave, uh, he sent the army after them? Maybe that's the anger part of the of the grief cycle. Right. So he, you know, it was easy to say when he was trying to negotiate. It was easy to say, you know, bless me. 
But the minute they left, he said, I changed my mind, I'm going to kill them. You know, you bring up a good point there. I mean, like it's, it's, you know, um, uh, the process of asking for forgiveness and forgiveness is not, is often not linear. Um, it's not linear. Uh, Hannah, I see your hand. Yeah. I have a thought that sort of adds to that. Um, we were, we talked a little bit about the geopolitical realities of the Pharaoh's day. Um, and, you know, taking into account that like he was a, you know, he was a monarch, he was a total ruler. Um, you know, you don't get that role without, uh, having a good amount of arrogance, you know, the pharaohs of that day, they claimed uh, legitimacy because they said they were like the descendants of God, right? Or of, you know, one of their their gods. Um, so it makes sense to me that a request for forgiveness from an incredibly arrogant person cannot be phrased as a, a request because they can't allow themselves to be soft and to be humble and to say, hey, I recognize I wronged you. I need forgiveness. Please, you know, please forgive me, you know. Um, so he phrases it as a command. Bless me too. It's a command. Um, so I don't necessarily see a ton of, and then, you know, to that, like, now how is he um, uh, going to behave later, you know, when he sends an army after them? Well, after a few days or, you know, hours or something of cooling off, he realizes he has a real, um, like, PR disaster on his hands, you know? Like, here he is, this total ruler, son of God, who had to let all of his, you know, enslaved people go and, you know, has had this massive catastrophe. You know, he kind of has to save face in a way. Um, otherwise, he really faces further, you know, he he faces being deposed himself. So... Like, I can see this as a kind of coherent um, behavior from that person. Question, I asked it in the group, but it was at the very end. We don't know what Moses and Aaron respond to this request, whether it's a request or an order or a command. There's no, do they forgive him? Do they give him a blessing? Do they say, in their heads, bite me? (laughs) And What does God think of this request? Yeah, no, that's a really good question because the you know one of the reasons that this becomes such a like a productive um, place of debate um, is because the, we aren't given an answer uh, to what to what happens, right? You know, if we look at um, it's always good to look at the context of verses. Here, let me just move this over here. Um, you know, it it says, "Bless me also." Um, and then just straight goes to, and the Egyptians urged like the Israelites on, impatient to have them leave the country. They're like, please leave, stop with the plagues. Um, and so, you know, people take the bread before it's leavened. Here we have matzah, you know, our kneading bowls wrapped in closer on our, our shoulders, and they go forth um, into into the wilderness. Um, so we're actually, we're not given um, a response other than the actions that the Israelites take um, and the Egyptians take in turn to uh, facilitate the exodus, the leaving of Egypt. And the, it, we, we leave that up for a second. That's yeah, so yeah. good. I love, I love the section you just, you just showed us because it actually shows how the Egyptians uh, were sort of more psychologically evolved than Pharaoh um, because the Egyptian Pharaoh understands and the Egyptians understand that the tables have turned, the tides have turned. Um, like no good will continue to come from trying to keep these people enslaved. Let them go, push them out, go, 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 go. But the 
so down here, so the Egyptian, excuse me, down, da, 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 right? Verse 35, the people took their dough before it was leavened, right? Like here's the, the beginnings of the Passover story, kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks on their shoulders. The Israelites did what Moses said and borrowed from the Egyptians objects of silver and gold and clothing. Um, and the Lord deposed the Egyptians excuse me, dispose the Egyptians favorably toward the people and they let them have their request. Thus, they stripped the Egyptians. But basically, I think, yeah, and that's and that's it. That That's fine. Thank you. But the idea that like the Egyptians were giving them gold and silver and clothes and saying, take this stuff, go, but like take take this stuff so that you won't hate us later. You know, I mean, this is uh, our friend David Myers, who's going to come and talk to the ethical wills class in a couple of weeks, is going to talk about exactly this verse. This is reparations. This is the Egyptians saying, we owe you, you know, and before you can go and, and look back and not hate us forever, we need to give you stuff. Pharaoh doesn't do that. Pharaoh tries to jump to the step where he's like, don't hate me forever. Bless me. Like, go on your way, but bless me. And I'm like, oh, you suck, Pharaoh, you know, guy. Like, you want you want the, the goodwill of these people and their God that you now understand is powerful, but you you will you have not done the work to uh, you know you're just you're just sort of asking for it like you deserve it. And then to Paul to Paul's point a moment ago, you have not earned it. You know, the second you're made to be uncomfortable again and you realize the results of your choice, then all of a sudden you want to go ahead and unmake that choice. You have not learned anything, Pharaoh. You do not deserve to be blessed in this moment. You know. Now I see that, and then I bracket it for a moment by also saying. Every person deserves a blessing of some sort in every moment. So there must be a blessing that Pharaoh, like, what's the blessing that Pharaoh deserves in this moment? You know, <laughs> what is the blessing? Because it's probably not like, may you continue to be the warm, generous self that you have demonstrated yourself to be thus far. It's not that he has not like, but maybe there is a blessing that he needs, like, may you accept this moment that has come and allow your heart to be transformed and opened. I, like that, that I think is actually worth playing with because probably all of us know somebody who we find detestable and rather than uh, holding a festering rage, it would actually behoove us to think, what is the blessing that I want for this person? You know, that seems like a worthy spiritual, you know, endeavor for the reader. That sounds like a Yiddish curse. Like, may you have the blessing you deserve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what percentage of Jews actually left? My understanding is a large number of Jews stayed. And what happened to the Jews that stayed? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, the rabbis, I think, try to make a guess, um, but we don't actually know, right? So we know that not only Israelites left. There's a section where it says that the Israelites left um chamushim which means like like a wait like waited um which is a a word referencing like all the stuff they're taking with them you know the gold the silver the clothes the reparations payments for lack of a better word like the the stuff chamushim but also that word chamushim is related to the word chamesh which means five and so paul one one sort of uh, a wordplay answer to your question that the rabbis come up with is one fifth of the israelites left one fifth, you know, the rest of them, the rest of them stayed. The rest of them didn't want to venture into the great unknown, but one fifth Hamushim uh, left. Um, and that's where they sort of get that the last, the ninth plague of darkness was 
um, the plague where if if the Israelites who decided not to leave, that they actually went the way of the Egyptians who were um, who were in that plague of darkness, you know, in the plague of the firstborn and all of that. Um, but that the one fifth who decided to leave left with, you know, this this group here. Why do you ask that question, though, Paul? For that very reason, I asked what happened to the ones that stayed and uh, politically, um, you know, what happened? I mean, it's it's like the story is all about uh, leaving, right. uh, but there's not a lot of history about staying and what happened to Egypt. I mean, you don't hear a lot of terrible stories about Egyptians falling apart after this. So is there any history? Um, you know, what happened to everybody else? That's interesting. I guess that's, that's not the story the Torah is telling. Like maybe somebody else shares that story somewhere else, but at, at that point, the camera follows the, the one fifth and zooms in on right, those. Right, right, right. It's interesting. It's an interesting um, kind of cycle that happens often through our history too, right? The, the, you know, kind of corollary to that, although there's many moments, I think, throughout our history where a minority continues on is the is the destruction of the second temple where this thought that the majority of jews at the time right kind of fade into the roman empire and only a minority right kind of retain this identity same with the destruction of the northern kingdom right we lose the 10 tribes um and we we retain two right so it's kind of this like i don't want to call it attrition but um a uh maybe a distillation, if you will, over time of the, the ones who are willing to kind of do the work um, to take the risk um, to, to make that journey, um, which, you know, to extend the metaphor, right, is the, is the work of, of reparations and forgiveness and, and that difficult relationship, right? It's a minority of people who can, who can sometimes like do that work, right? Are you kind of, are you part of the people who's willing to do, to do that work um, or what work can be done is another question. Any other stuff come up for people? I really liked the midrash about um, Pharaoh understands that that basically he was morally bankrupt. I mean, it says here that he was lacking in prayer, but God does not forgive someone until they have persuaded their neighbor to forgive them as well. So this, you know, sort of reminded me of, you know, like basic Jewish theory on forgiveness, which is like, don't expect like absolution to come from above from God, if you have not done the work with your, with, you know, whoever it was that you insulted, hurt, offended, oppressed, you know, whatever it is. And that Pharaoh actually does understand that it seems like he's still trying to, you know, bend the system to his lazy will, but, um, but, but that he does understand that. It's why confession, right. Is not a, is not a Jewish um, institution, right. You know, I, as rabbis, obviously, we're always here to talk you through um, anything that's on your mind. But, you know, more often than not, if you come to us and say, I wronged somebody, you know, we're here to be an emp- empathic ear. And then we'll probably say to you, you know, have you continued to consider talking to that person? Right. Because that's actually what, where the healing where the healing happens is is reaching out. And the rabbis are really interested in this, right? They create a structure around it, this idea that we're supposed to, in earnest, right, change our behavior and try to ask for forgiveness at least three times, right? Um, The idea being that uh, we're supposed to be persistent in our pursuit of forgiveness and repair. Um, And, you know, the rabbis bring in all sorts of requirements for for witness and for for somewhat of an obligation even on the wronged person to say, like, you know, you really... 
you really need to consider, right, can you believe in the capacity of people to change, uh, which is really, I think, in the end, what this story is about, is do we actually believe in the capacity of people to change? Um, or do we believe that situations and people are static? And our Exodus story, so much of it is about, right, a system that had been in place for four centuries, um, impossibly being turned over, right? It's the miracle is that actually within something that seems so stuck and so stagnant, um, we were able to find the miracle of change and the hope that things could be different, um, which is kind of this persistent reminder on, on a very macro societal level in the story. But I think um, within this line, we're challenged to think about, do we actually also believe in the possibility of change on the micro level, on the personal level, that people can actually become different people? Any, any thoughts on that? When you were saying that, I was reminded because it wasn't that long ago we were studying when uh, uh, Joseph's brothers first came to him in Egypt and there is the reconciliation and Judah is different. Take me, but not Benjamin. Um, So yes, in that story, there's change. In this story, Pharaoh really doesn't change. So I, I think we really do know the answer. Yes, people can change, but they don't always. Mm-hmm. And, and even when the <laughs> right, and even when the Egyptians are drowning in the in the Red Sea, which is the result of Pharaoh not really changing, uh, God still rebukes the angels. We are not going to rejoice in that reality. Mm. We accept it. They have to drown, but we won't celebrate it. You know, I think that you're bringing up a really beautiful point here, right? So the, the amazing thing about the Joseph story is that right, t- so much time has passed between the original um, wound, if you will, um, and the healing of that wound, right? And so, so it's really at the point where where Joseph encounters his brothers again, it's a scab, right? It's not like a it's not like a healed it's not a healed wound so much, um, and and Joseph gives them the opportunity, right, to say you know, have you changed, right? I'm going to actually put you in a situation that tests you. Are you the same people you were so many years ago? And, and they give, they give him the answer, which is no, we've, we've changed. But the first stage of that actually is Joseph having to have the capacity to believe that they could change because he could have seen them come up to his door and just been like, Oh, nope. I know you. I know exactly how you operate. I remember exactly what you did to me all those years ago, and I'm just going to I'm gonna send you on your way. I have the power to send you on your way, and I have the power to sit here in my self-assuredness that I know exactly the kind of person you are, um, and I refuse to believe that you can change. But right, we're actually rebuked alongside the angels at that scene at the Sea of Reeds. Right? We don't celebrate a bad person not changing. Right? Actually, that's not a moment where we can sit back and see like, See, God, I told you so. The angels, right? You know, the bride's like, no, you can't do that, angels. You can't just sit back and say, like, see, God, I told you so. Evil is as evil does. Right? God's like, no. No, this is a sad moment. Like, we're we're heartbroken that the change that maybe we saw a spark of in Pharaoh hasn't actually, hasn't actually taken hold. Um, and we have to retain, as hard as it is, the capacity to believe that maybe eventually you know, this person could change, but we are not allowed, right? The, the, the self-satisfaction of crossing our arms and saying like, well, that's who you are. And that's who you are always going to be because that's right. That's the Joseph story.
he put some distance between himself and his brothers. I'm not saying that you have to always stay close to the people who hurt you, right? Joseph Joseph puts some distance, and he and he does keep them at arm's length even while he is testing them. But he does, even while holding them at arm's length, says, you know, I do believe that you might have the ability to change, and I'm going to I'm going to be open to that, even as I protect myself from being hurt again. Um, so I want to share a really beautiful midrash with you. This is actually, this is going to feel like it's coming out of left field um, because it's from an entirely different book of the Tanakh. So some of you might know the story of Jonah, the reluctant prophet, right? So we read this story. Uh, Jonah is told by God to go to the great city of Nineveh, which, mind you, at that time was one of the chief enemies of the Israelites, right? And this is the capital of the kingdom of Neo-Assyria, um, which would eventually actually be the same, right, empire that would conquer the northern kingdom and scatter the 10 tribes, like not our best friends. And Jonah is told, go to this city that is full of people who you probably don't like so much, um, who are very different from you, and, and help them repent, right? Help them repent. And so Jonah goes... Um, and much to his chagrin, because he doesn't really like these people so much, he starts preaching in the city, and immediately the king of Nineveh repents and says, I put on sackcloth and ashes, I'm going to have everybody gather together and fast and, and repent of the, of the behavior, the, the, the harmful behavior that we have been doing. And so the rabbis love this. It's like it's called conservation of personality is the technical term. The rabbis don't like having too many characters in the Tanakh. They like to, if there's mystery characters, they like to see if we can match them up and make them the same person. And so the rabbis write this really beautiful midrash, this really beautiful explanation of the text. And they're like, you know, actually who owned Nineveh at the time of Jonah? Pharaoh did, or at least one of Pharaoh's descendants, but probably the same Pharaoh did. And actually, what this is, is this Pharaoh many years later saying, I know how this goes, and I've learned my lesson, and I've put the work in, and I'm not going to be hard-hearted, but I'm going to listen, and I'm going to repent. Whether we believe that actually the king of Nineveh and Pharaoh are the same person, I think we can debate about that another time. But what the rabbis are doing is they're saying, no, we're actually going to challenge you in believing that even the most wicked person, right, actually has the capacity to change. And while we can keep people at arm's length if they're harmful to us, right, while we should protect ourselves, right, we also have to retain an openness, a belief, right, even in the most impossible situations of the possibility of redemption, not only on a social level, but also on that personal level as well, that we never are allowed the satisfaction of crossing our arms and saying, you're always going to be the same person. You're always going to be this way. Because if we believe that about other people, then what does that say about us, right? That we actually believe that everybody has that capacity. And we have so many examples throughout our tradition. The rabbis love to do this. They, they take all the most wicked people from, from Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to Sennacherib, uh, the, another king who tried to conquer us. And they say, actually, you know who their descendants were? Their descendants were some of the greatest rabbis in our tradition. Um, because maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't change in their lives, but they started to set into motion a process that generations later allowed for change, for not only a small change, but a great change in who these people were. And so I, my blessing for you, right, is that as hard as it might be sometimes, um, and as much as we may need to protect ourselves, right, and take care of ourselves, is that we continue to retain the ability to believe that people can change. Because in the end, that's also a belief about ourselves, that we can also change and become better people. 
more whole people, kinder, gentler people in a world that often challenges us, often, often roughens us up a little bit, that we can retain that ability as well. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org slash events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at mishkanchicago. As always, we want to hear from you. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.